I'm Gail. And hi, I'm Catherine. Welcome to Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined, our award-winning weekly podcast. Please visit womenover70.com and consider joining Aging Reimagined Circle, our sustaining membership fund, so we may continue to inspire women to age with curiosity, courage, and creativity. Members enjoy monthly programming and probing discussions, and we hope to see you there. And today we have with us Drs. Emily and Mitchell Kleansky. Emily Kleansky is a doctor who has completed residencies in internal medicine and in psychiatry and is a diplomate of the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology. She specializes in the care of patients with cognitive impairments. Mitchell Kleansky, Ph.D., is a board-certified neuropsychologist who specializes in evaluating and treating patients with cognitive impairments, dementia, ADHD, and traumatic brain injury. They are a husband and wife team with a combined 70 years of professional and clinical experience in medicine and neuropsychology and have treated about 20,000 patients. They partner at a private practice, Kleonsky Neurosystems, Inc., based in Springfield, Massachusetts, and are frequent public speakers, podcast guests, and workshop presenters for general and professional audiences. Their most recent book, Dementia Prevention, Using Your Head to Save Your Brain, was published earlier this year by John Hopkins Press. So welcome to Women Over 70, Emily and Mitchell. We're so happy to have you on our show. Well, thank you so much for inviting us. We're delighted to be here with you this afternoon. <laughs> I specifically want to say that it's a real honor. I understand I may be the first male to actually be on this podcast. I appreciate your making an exception, and I'll try not to let you down. You are special, Mitchell. No question. You are. <laughs> we we had to we had to talk about it, but yes, <laughs> yes, and uh, we we know you're going to live up to the hype for your being on this show. And uh, you know, I read your book from cover to cover, and I loved your style of writing. And it's a blend of a, of academic research. Of it's evidence based. It's um, it's really a down to earth application on a very difficult topic. And so there's a lot that we want to talk to you about. And But first of all, we have to have a little human interest. Why did you separately decide to specialize in cognitive impairments? So, Emily, you want to go first? Wow. That's a, that's a tall question, tall order. But I'll try and keep it short, Dale. Um, really and truly, it's because as an internist, I realized that there were so many people who were in the age groups I was treating primarily, which people above the age of 55, who were really having major problems with how they were thinking. And I decided to specialize in that and incorporate all the most uh, recent research about how to help these folks and their families. And I realized it was going to take a concerted effort to do that. So uh, that's when I went back, did a second residency, and spent most of that residency really concentrating on dementia and all the factors that caused it. Mm. So it was really just realizing the needs of our population in that particular uh, time of our lives. Right. How about you, Mitchell? I came out of a graduate school with a PhD in clinical psychology, 
a real interest in understanding how the brain works. This was back before there were any residencies to speak of in neuropsychology, which is an area where you basically measure how people think. So I was really at the forefront of a lot of this. And, you know, they say in the world of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. Well, in neuropsychology back then, having a little bit of experience and knowledge, I was able to parlay that into starting a neuropsychology testing lab at Bay State Medical Center, my right out of graduate school, and then continue with this over the course of my career. And as the field has matured, hopefully my knowledge has matured along with it. And so when Emily and I got together and uh, shared this, this same interest, it just seemed like a natural professional kind of marriage in that sense. When my mother came down with dementia in her early 70s, it also took on a personal note for me because I became even more impassioned about how do we do something? How do we stop this from happening to other people? How do we take the people we're seeing now and slow it down and potentially make their lives a lot better? I understood from reading your book that that dementia is not Alzheimer's, and I'm sure I had confusion about that before. So what can you tell us? What, what do we need to know about this? How do we differ, differentiate the two? Well, you know, it's like saying um, that um, Fords and Chevys and Saabs and Audis, they're all cars, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but they're different kinds of cars. They have different characteristics. So too with dementia versus Alzheimer's disease. Alzheimer's disease is a type of dementia. Parkinson's disease with dementia, Lewy body dementia, frontotemporal dementia, those are all different kinds of dementias, but they are, in general, as you would describe them, a, a decompensation, a degeneration of the brain in more than one category of activity, in more than one category of thinking, that actually causes us to lose functional ability. Mm -hmm. Is that a little clear? Yes. Alzheimer's has become the most famous yeah. aspect, mm -hmm. although not necessarily in the greatest percentage of cases. We now think that Alzheimer's mixed with vascular dementias, circulatory problems in the brain, the old hardening of the arteries, now reconceptualized as vascular dementia, in many cases, is present when people have a diagnosis of Alzheimer's, and it oftentimes by itself, either through strokes or high blood pressure that's not treated, or diabetes, or sleep disorder, breathing, all of which impact our vascular system, our blood flow, impact how we're able to think and function. Yeah, that makes so much sense. And... and um so, so how, tell us about your clinic. You know, if, if people come there and they have various issues that they seem to be dealing with, what, you know, walk us through how you would take, take, you know, how you would examine someone like this. Well, it depends. First of all, if they come to see Mitch first, um, they get neuropsychological testing and he can describe that in more detail for you. 
if they come to see me first, I do a very traditional uh, thorough evaluation of someone that involves checking every single thing about them, which includes what their rate of their heart rate is, what their rhythm is, what their oxygen level is while they're sitting nice and still, while they're walking down the hallway outside my office. Um, I do a good physical exam of them. I do a test of their thinking ability that Mitch and I actually designed together called the Memory Orientation Screening Test. I interview the patient, spend a lot of time with them, in fact, um, and if they brought their family, which I generally ask them to do, I spend a lot of time with their family as well, getting the history in the background and understanding their, their medical history. Because that really gives me the guidelines as to what am I most likely looking at? And then at the first appointment, I explain the whole process of how this can be treated, what the expectations can be. We order blood work, order an overnight sleep test called a uh, nocturnal pulse oximetry, which checks heart rate and oxygen level overnight. If the person has not been to see Mitch and his team yet, I will request full neuropsychological testing because I really want to get an objective measure of how that person's capable of thinking. Mm -hmm. And I may order imaging. I may order an MRI. I order a PET scan or an even more specialized test to check for beta amyloid in their brain, the kind of amyloid that's produced in Alzheimer's disease and vascular dementia, as well as a few other kinds of dementias. So it's a very uh, comprehensive physical and mental evaluation, and then they get to go to Mitch's team. Basically, as you point out, we try to identify what the pattern of their strengths and weaknesses are. You know, is it memory that's primarily the problem? Are they having problems with their executive functions, their judgment, their planning, their ability to think in abstract ways? We look at their intelligence, we look at their attention paying, and basically this is a starting point. And if I'm working with people in the community who are not seeing Emily, I feed that back to them and try to get their doctors to do it. Life is much easier when they're seeing Emily, to be honest, <laughs> because I simply tell her what's going on from my perspective and tell the patients what's going on with a nice detailed report, and then go on to treatment. Right. And treatment is incredibly comprehensive. The The rule in good internal medicine is, you know, we as internists, we understand that we cannot fix diabetes. We can only control diabetes. Mm -hmm. If we're very, very lucky, we can control some forms of cancer, but we always have to be vigilant for reoccurrence. Mm -hmm. So the rule in internal medicine is identify everything that is correctable, that is modifiable, that's that you can optimize, and then do targeted intervention with what we can't repair. So, for instance, when someone comes in, one of the first things I did was check their oxygen level. So they may have a normal, we may have a normal oxygen level as we're just sitting here talking to each other. But when we sleep at night and our throat muscles relax, we may find that we don't have enough air getting down our airway into our lungs 
And so our brains don't have enough oxygen at night. Well, there's only one way to find that, and that's to do an overnight pulse oximetry first. And that will give me what the person's overnight oxygen levels are, second by second, and what their heart rates are, second by second, so that I know what kind of medication I can safely prescribe for them. Or if their heart rate is already too low, I can call their cardiologist and say, gee, we ought to change that metoprolol. Um, And if their oxygen level isn't good, and they meet Medicare criteria, I can prescribe oxygen for them via a little face mask or a nasal cannula, and then find out if maybe this person's not getting enough air down their airway and they're sleeping because they have sleep apnea, which is an obstruction in the airway as we sleep. And if that's the case, then we fix that. The blood work that we order we take a look at some very specific things like homocysteine. We talk about this in the book. Yale, as you remember, homocysteine, methylmalonic acid, vitamin D levels, iron levels, thyroid levels. We look at all those and we optimize them. Sometimes it means I'm the one that's prescribing medication. Sometimes it means that their primary care doctor will want to do that. And so we work hand in hand with those clinicians. And then the next step is to follow them closely over time. We can start dementia sparing medications that have been available now for a good long while because we do know that those help. They're not going to fix our brains, but they're going to slow everything down. And when we fix what's fixable and start the dementia sparing medications, we can get some pretty good results. Mitch, could you tell them about the the stuff that we've actually published in front of the American Academy of Neurology? Basically, yes. I mean, it's a study that followed about 700 people over the course of two years. And half of these people came to see me, but weren't seeing Emily. They were getting standard care from the community and recommendations about medication that I was making. The other half were going through her protocol and were having all these other factors checked as well as specifically focusing on their likelihood of sleep apnea, as well as working on some behavioral techniques. I don't want to miss that because I want to get back to that and talk right. about exactly. behavior too, because that's really important. But we found that within six months, these two groups separated with the group seeing per actually improving from where they started, the group that was giving traditional care slightly worse, but statistically significantly different so by chance, it was unlikely that this was just happening. That increased over the next six months and remained that way over the next year as we followed them. So there really are things that can be done if you go about it in a comprehensive way, and if you pay attention to all those reversible or reversible factors. The other thing that we talk about in the book a lot is still making behavior change. But let me give you a chance because I'm talking too much. Let me give you a chance to ask some more questions. <laughs> well, no, it's interesting what you're saying, and it's okay if you just continue on. Catherine, did you have a question? Um, I think it might fit better a little bit later, but just to bring it up, it's about about access because I'm just wondering if there are enough of you out there to serve the needs Nope. And um, I think I, great I, question, Catherine. No, there aren't. 
And we know that we're short of doctors in this country to start with, but according to the most recent Alzheimer's Association uh, poll of primary care physicians of all different kinds, 65% of them admit to not knowing or feeling comfortable with treating dementia or cognitive impairment. Wow. So, yeah, we're really uh, working under the uh, a dearth of uh, adequately trained, knowledgeable physicians. One of the reasons why we wrote the book, because we're not getting any younger. Uh, <laughs> I'm 71. Mitch is 72. Um I'm not going to be practicing probably, uh, you know, in my 90s. So I, I want to make sure, as did Mitch, we wanted to make sure that this protocol and that this information got into the hands of the public so that they can read the book, take that checklist that's in the middle of the book to their doctor and say, look, I really want to try and make a difference as soon as I, I can in my life. <laughs> and if they start that at 40, great. They started at 20. Wonderful. But if somebody picks it up and they're 75 and they start to do this today, that's even better because it's it's going to give them a really great chance at having the next decade to decade and a half of their lives be healthier and happier and more productive, which is what we all want. Even if there, there are already signs of dementia that are even if there's already signs of dementia, those people that, that Mitch talked about in that study, some of them, uh, the minimal amount of the, the, the smallest group of that cohort were normal cognitively. The others were split in between severe, moderate, mild, and mild cognitive impairment. And each group experienced a, a significant improvement and then stabilization in their cognition. Yes, these things do make a difference. But obviously, the sooner you start, the more you have to work with because there's actually more brain matter, more connections mm -hmm. between brain cells, more chemistry in the brain to work with. So as with anything else, prevention, you know, now it's a prevention's worth a pound of cure, as Franklin mm -hmm. said. We actually, we quote that in the book. We really believe it. The problem with prevention is it's just not as sexy as cure. So you can spend a ton of money on cure, but if you started early, you would save all of that plus a lot of heartache in the meantime. I'm going back to the book, taking out that checklist and really seriously paying attention to it. <laughs> it's also available for free download on our website. So you can go to brainbook.com yes, and download the PDF so that you have it. You don't have to buy the book. Obviously, we'd love for you to have the book, but you just want the checklist. It's for free. You download the PDF. You could fill it out. Take it to your doctor. Say that, that website again, please. Braindoc, B-R-A-I-N-D-O-C, braindoc.com. Right, yeah. So so is your type of medicine, Emily, called functional medicine? Actually, I'm, I'm not familiar with the term functional medicine. Hmm. Um, so I'm a little um, Mitch, do you? From what I've read about it, functional medicine, I think, is much less traditional medicine you practice. You practice internal medicine the way it was intended to be practiced before people started getting 10-minute visits. Yeah, I, I practice internal medicine the way we used to know of internal medicine 30 years ago, mm -hmm. which is you had at least an hour with your doctor. Uh, when people come to see me, they're generally with me for hour, hour and a half. 
And when I say I do a thorough physical exam, they get looked at from the top of their heads down to the bottom of their feet where I'm, you know, checking for a peripheral neuropathy with a tuning fork. I don't know how many of you have had that done wow. by your doctors lately. But, um, you know, back to the principles of good medicine, I think is one of the things that we really need to be focusing in on in this country, as opposed to the 10 minute, keep the insurance company happy, let me scribble out that script and keep handing you a, a prescription every time you come in. And then, you know, the doctor doesn't even think most of the time, why am I writing for the fifth high blood pressure medicine? Rather than saying to somebody, either the patient or their family, take every medicine bottle out of the cabinet, put it in a brown bag, and bring it into me, and then just check and see if the patient's taking it or not, which you can figure out by seeing how many pills are in the bottle, when was the last time the prescription was filled, painful, time-consuming, yes, but well worth it. That's what our pay, that's what people deserve. There actually is this mechanism called the annual wellness visit for Medicare, which can take an hour and doctors get paid for it. Unfortunately, a lot of times the annual wellness visit is not actually done by a doctor or even a nurse practitioner. It's done by someone else who's sort of going through the, the checklist in their office. Mm -hmm. And so a lot gets missed. I see these reports all the time from the annual wellness visit. It's the skinniest note I ever saw, except for all the boilerplate. I said, well, they're missing that. In fact, I'm sitting there reconciling their medications with them, and most of those are not on the list because they were prescribed by the cardiologist or they were prescribed by the neurologist. But the person is still taking them, and the person who's organizing their medical care just doesn't know. And that's part of the problem, is we need to have quarterbacks on the team, so to speak. We need to have organizers who are responsible for that network of physicians. Because these days, it's many different providers. Yeah, exactly. One of the other things I, I tell my families, and, and you know, I, I don't just talk about patients, I talk about families, because this really is, um, it, it took a village to raise a child. Well, it takes a family uh, to get us through the latter stages of our life, I, I sometimes think. And whether it's of our family by birth or by marriage, or we just acquire really close friends who love us, and we're lucky in that regard. Um, I think what we need to do is recognize, first of all, where we're at in our stage of life. You know, I, in my 70s, am a different person than I was in my 50s. And one of the important things I can do for my husband and for my kids and my grandkids is write down a complete list of all the medical things that have ever happened to me hmm. and when they happened and what medicines I am on now and who all my doctors are and what their phone numbers are and make sure that the the quarterback of my team knows where to find that information in case I can't tell them. Mm -hmm. I want to make sure that my grandchildren know what the genetic propensity is in the family. Because if they need to start cancer screening at 30 instead of 45, well, I want to make sure that happens. Yeah, that's interesting. My um, Just a quick start. My cousins got together recently, and a, as a part of the conversation was health conditions over time. And one of them just sent me a two-page list of everyone in the, the family, parents, the aunts, the uncles, the cousins, 
and all of the health conditions that we've had. High blood pressure is with every single person. Mm, wow. Who knew? You know, and so what would you do with that kind of information if we, it, if, and I, you mentioned high blood pressure, so I was just thinking about yeah. that. Is that connection, is there a connection with any forms of dementia? Catherine, you're spot on. Absolutely. Hypertension is one, is one of the major top 10 causes of uh, vascular dementia, but it is also closely linked to other types of dementia because what happens in high blood pressure is brain cells are damaged because the blood vessels that are carrying that blood to the brain cells get damaged themselves. So the blood supply isn't as good as it should be. And the high blood pressure also damages the heart. So the heart can't work and squeeze electrically as regularly as it needs to, to keep the blood circulating. So that's another reason why the high blood pressure is bad for our brains. And so if everybody or a, a high number of people in the family have um, a hypertension problem, I would probably ask my internist about that and get them to take a look at all the other things that are related to hypertension. Everybody thinks that hypertension comes from your heart, and it's really not being driven by your heart. It's driven by our kidneys. And so we need to figure out what's going on with the kidneys. What's also, what organs have been affected by this high blood pressure and what should really be done about it? Because there may be a family propensity, a family diastasis is what we call it. Fancy term. Don't ask me to spell it. I can't. <laughs> but um, yeah, that your cousin did a brilliant thing. Mm -hmm. And what's really important to understand is that, you know, taking medications that control the blood pressure really reduce those risks. So it's not like, oh my goodness, I've got high blood pressure, I'm doomed. It's, I've got high blood pressure, now I've got to moderate my blood pressure. It may mean that I'm salt sensitive, I need to cut down the sodium in my diet. It may need that I'm on two, perhaps even three medications for this. I can't skip days and just assume, well, I must be fine because I don't have any symptoms today. It means I've got to exercise regularly because I know if I exercise, that it by itself will reduce the damage to my vascular system. I've got to look to see if I'm breathing well while I'm sleeping because that'll elevate my blood pressure, it'll drop my heart rate, there's all kinds of things. So a lot of this is how do we take this information, turn it into an action plan. Right. Yeah. And you need a, you're probably going to need some some technical help from a good internist to do that. Um, for instance, when we talk, you know, Mitch just gave you some great examples about things that actually cause hypertension. But here's some subtle things we don't often think about. You know, that nice glass of wine we love to have maybe a couple of nights a week or when we're out to dinner with friends. Well, believe it or not, that drink could actually increase our blood pressure. And when we stop drinking alcohol, it can be responsible for a 10-point drop in our overall systolic blood pressure. So these are sort of fun. I you're know. No fun. You're no fun anymore. Well, I'm done listening now. These are the kinds of things that we need to think about. 
and to know. Uh, and and sometimes our blood pressure is very very high at one point of the day, but very low at other points of the day. And so you sit there and you can't figure out why when you just bend down to to pick up your laundry basket you got dizzy all of a sudden mm-hmm. and scared. I mean that's a scary feeling. Well, what it may be is that blood pressure medicine that's really good for you when you go see your doctor at 2 p.m. or 3 p.m. in the afternoon when your blood pressure's up. Well, in the morning, you may have a blood pressure where you can't get your head off the floor. So the doctor may need to do a 24 or 72-hour blood pressure monitoring. So there's some, some real classic medicine things here that can optimize the care of any one of us that really is concerned about the state of our brain. So let's go back to the checklist. Yes. And tell it. Yes. Time goes much too fast. <laughs> we feel the same way. <laughs> so, so, you know, what's, what's, Tell us some of the things that are on that checklist, and uh, yeah, and then we're going to defer to Mitch on this one, Gail, because he actually was the designer of the checklist. Okay, it's just based on the model that we develop in the book, where you start with historical factors, your genetics, your early childhood, which you can't really do anything about now. But then we move into midlife, where we start dealing with a lot of those vascular factors, high blood pressure smoking cigarettes, which is never a good thing, not just for cancer, but for your blood pressure and for your brain, uh, the effects of obesity. Uh, you know, there's a lot of shame involved in weight and in obesity. But if you put that aside, you have to understand that our bodies were basically designed to carry a certain amount of weight. And if you're carrying a lot more than you were designed for, your body just doesn't work properly. And so if you take it out of that realm and say, what was the weight that my brain was designed to carry here and deal with? You come to a much better understanding of what do I need to do? How do I need to change either the amount I'm eating, what I'm eating, when I'm eating it? There's a lot of factors, much more that I want to go into. But it turns out that obesity is an important thing. And tied into that is our exercise and activity levels. Some of the worst things that you can do for yourself is to lie on the couch, watching TV, not seeing people with what we now know as sensory impairments through hearing loss, vision loss, being depressed, and not treating the depression, not exercising, not doing those things that get you out and connected with other people. So we go through all of those various factors, as well as questions about sleep apnea, because it turns out one of the things that connects a lot of these dots is the fact that we need oxygen. Simple thing. But we don't recognize it until it's missing, and then suddenly other things don't work very well. There's also some assessment you have to do in terms of what are you taking to go to sleep? And here's where we start getting into all these very interesting connections. So let's suppose you've got sleep apnea. So you're not breathing well. You're also getting up three, four times to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night. So you tell your doctor... I just can't sleep because I got to get up to pee. Doctor says, don't worry. I got this medicine for you that's going to tighten your bladder. It's not going to be a problem. So you take this. Great. Helps your bladder. However, it depletes your brain of the chemical that is important for thinking. So 
don't yes you don't have as much choline <laughs> in your brain for many of those medications not all of them but many of them most of them yes if you're also depressed because you're not sleeping or you're not sleeping because you're depressed some of the antidepressants will deplete that same chemical if you then take a sleeping pill over the counter it's got to be okay it says something pm i can get it without a prescription it's got to be safe right it's got to be contains diphenhydramine benadryl also depletes that same chemical so now you have a double whammy you're not getting enough oxygen you're suppressing your mental function by depriving your brain of chemicals it needs you are spacey because of the cumulative effects who wants to go out for a walk at that point? Now, maybe tomorrow, I'll sit here and tune into reruns. So you see all of these things, they get intertwined with each other, and they become multiplicative. And that's that's the dilemma. That's why if you could understand the various moving parts and assess where you are in an honest way, including if you're having more than a drink or two on a frequent basis, if you're looking at these other factors as well, then you say, Okay, where did I change some of these? And how do I break into this pattern? Because as complicated as all these different strands are, if you start pulling on some of the strands and changing some of those, it will have a long-term effect on the others. So there's not one intervention. Rather, there's an individualized approach. You've got to know your own territory first. What's, what's my, my strength and weaknesses here? And then you have a chance to decide where to start and how to proceed. So that's what the last part of the book's all about, right. making change. Right. Yeah. That's why I had to read it cover to cover. It helps to go in order. <laughs> it helps to go in order, exactly. Yes. Yeah. But I can see I need to take it out again and now look at it specifically for me and what changes maybe I need to make. That's a great idea. Great idea, Gal. Yes. We're constantly doing that with each other, by the way. So oh. that's, uh, we practice, yeah. we preach. We're both very much involved in daily exercise. We're both very involved in watching our weight. We're both very involved in staying mentally stimulated. Mm -hmm. Work does that to a great degree, <laughs> but uh, you really want to do a stress test of your relationship. Right. Write a book. You're going to create some really interesting new. I don't recommend this for the fate of art. Right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> well, thank you so much for all of this. Yes. Very, very interesting. And the two of you are a delight to speak with. We appreciate Mitchell, your being on with, with Emily. And, um, yeah, really, really very, very informative, very informative. And thank you for having us. We really appreciate this opportunity. And you. uh, you're welcome. You're very welcome. Can I hold a little book? Pardon? Can I plug the book? Please? Yes, plug it. Where do we get it? You get it anywhere. It's on Amazon. On It's on a number of bookstores. You can borrow it in the library. It's on Kindle. It's on iPad, and it's on audiobook. So if you really like to get your education while you're doing other things, dementia prevention, using your head to save your brain. Yes. Well, Gail knows that I will be ordering mine in just a moment. So 
Well, great. Thank you, Catherine. Take good well, care. Thank you so much for having us today. Thank you. And just and listeners, thank you for your loyalty because of you. Our numbers are growing all across the country and overseas, and this is a good thing. Still, we need more subscribers and reviews on Apple Play and YouTube. Support women over 70 and let your voice be heard and help us change the conversation about women aging.